0: Well, good morning. How's everyone doing today? Awesome. Well, so glad to be here. Thank you again to Pastor David for the gracious invitation. Uh, man, it's a little colder up here, but it's it's good. It's good to be here. So uh, my wife and I have a 10-month so- 10-month-old son named Elliot, which is cool. Uh, They're over in the nursery right now. I think he's taking a nap. But being a dad to Elliot has been one of my greatest joys and privileges of my life so far. I remember when we first found out that we were pregnant, we immediately thought about all of the things that we had to prepare for, things like cribs mattresses, making sure our apartment is baby-proof, diapers, you you name it. And uh, one of the, the most important things that we had to prepare for, and you know this if you're a parent, is his name. Picking a name can be really difficult, and Sam and I had this common agreement that if it was a girl, we like knew what the name would be. We knew it like years ago. Well, I was like, yeah, like we'd love this name to be uh, for our daughter. But when we found out that we were having a boy, we were scrambling. We had no idea what we were going to name our son because it never just even occurred to us for whatever reason. And so we kicked around a whole bunch of different names. Things like Peter, like Peter Parker. That sounds cool. We kicked around uh, Denzel, you know Denzel Washington's favorite actor. Uh, uh, so many names, but but none stuck like the name Elliot did. And so in life, as you know, we're always preparing for something. We're preparing for the holidays. Christmas is in like 23 days or something crazy. Uh, We prepare for work. We prepare for sporting events. We prepare for presentations. We prepare for for difficult conversations. In life, we're always preparing. And as we wrap up our series on first and second Peter uh, today, Peter is going to answer this question for us. How do we prepare for the coming of our Lord Jesus? I don't know if you ever think about that, but like, how do we prepare for the coming of our Lord? And Peter's going to teach us three things. He's going to teach us that we wait, we watch, and we grow. So first, we wait. Look at it in Second Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 14. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this day, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. So when Peter says you ought to look forward to this day, he's referring to the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ. And if you are here last week, uh, Pastor David preached an awesome message on this. But this is a day where God judges and restores It's a day where the old heavens and the old earth passes away and the new is going to be ushered in. And this is a theme that Peter hits on constantly throughout his book. Hollywood is interesting because they've made some interesting end-of-the-world movies. Maybe you're familiar with some. And one thing about all of these Hollywood movies is that no one is ever happy about the world coming to an end. Uh, These things are never marked by peace, tranquility. Someone sipping on tea, enjoying an afternoon snack. No, the movies are always marked by uh, uh, chaos and fear and widespread panic. But as Peter writes to this first group of Christians, he says we're to look forward to that day. Why? Because the, the future promise is meant to give our hearts a present hope. Like, I know that this life isn't all there is. So regardless of what comes my way, circumstances don't actually have the ability to rob us of what's coming. But we also look forward to that day because it tells us that there's still time. There's still time for our family to come to know Jesus. There's time for our coworker to come to know Jesus. There's time for your son or your daughter or your niece or your nephew to come to know Jesus. You might be visiting here for the first time, and the Lord wants you to know that there's time for you to come and know Jesus. God is patient. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love, and he desires to be in relationship with you and I today so Peter says we look forward to that final day. And if we look forward to something, that obviously means that it hasn't happened yet. We have to wait for it. And when I hear that word, wait, it's it's, honestly, it's not a word I get excited about. I don't know who's ever excited to wait for something. Uh, I think about all the times I've been stuck in traffic waiting. That's a common occurrence in New York City, by the way. Uh, Stuck behind the person at the grocery store with a cart that's full enough to feed a small village. (laughs) Waiting. Uh, I think about, you know, not having great cell service, and I'm trying to send a text, and I'm like holding my phone up to the sky. Don't even know if that works, but I'm waiting. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, but so often we associate waiting with complaining. We have to wait when technology is too slow. We have to wait when people are too slow. We have to wait when life seems to move too slow, but Peter says there's a different kind of waiting. I've been to a couple of NFL football games, and I've never actually participated in a tailgate party. Uh, They've always looked so interesting, Uh, but, you know, the idea is that people get to the stadium early, they set up tents and chairs, and and they set up grills, and they're doing all of these things, and they're just, like, getting really pumped up about the game before it even starts. They're celebrating their team, they're, like, laughing, they're they're high-fiving each other, and the game starts in, like, four hours. It kind of sounds wonderful, but tailgating culture is a real thing. You might have some experience with it, but there's planning and organizing and shopping. And the whole purpose of the tailgate is that the waiting is meant to produce something in them. And Peter's saying that the same is true for us. Peter isn't saying that as we wait, we just stare at a, a, a countdown timer. No, Peter says waiting requires our involvement. Peter says as you wait, make every effort. Not some effort, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. One commentator said that the look of hope must produce a life of holiness. As we wait for Jesus to come back, our job isn't actually to predict when he's coming. Our job isn't to interpret every event of history. When, when Jesus comes back, our job is really to ready ourselves for his return because he's not going to say, I'm here, like you got the predictions right. He's going to say, what was your life about? We can't earn approval from Jesus. We can't earn our standing. But the Bible makes it clear that the response of someone who loves him, who trusts him, is to obey him. The response of someone who loves Jesus is to continually move their lives closer and closer to him, to grow in love with the things he loves and not be casual with the things that he hates. 1 Timothy 4 puts it like this, instead, train yourself to be godly. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. Dallas Willard used to say, grace isn't opposed to effort, grace is opposed to earning. And we're going to talk more about that. But as we wait for the coming of our Lord, we're to make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace. And notice, Peter doesn't call us out of the world. He doesn't call us out to bunker up and to just kind of close up blinds and and, and wait until it's safe to go outside. Like Peter's actually saying, it's in this world that's marked by greed, impurity, corruption, that would have lived set apart, that would have lived holy. Because this is the way of Jesus, to live in the world, but to distinct from how everyone else is living. Do you give much thought to that future day? Does the promised future give your heart a present hope? Do you wait in the way that Peter describes here, or do you live as though this life is all there is? I get it. It's, it's so easy to get bogged down with sports and work and responsibilities. But, but Peter's encouraging us that, that we have to remember to look up, that we have to remember to fix our gaze on Jesus. Because when we think about Jesus and the reality of his kingdom and how he's coming back, it puts everything else into perspective. So Peter first teaches us that we have to wait, but it, he then teaches that we watch. Look at it in verse 16. He says, He, talking about Paul, writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. Amen. Now, when when Peter says that uh, he writes in the same way that Paul writes, he's saying that Paul touches on the same subjects of holiness, perseverance, and patience in in almost all of his letters. Everything that Peter has talked about, Paul has talked about. But then Peter goes on to explain that Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. So if you've ever found yourself reading one of the letters from Paul and you're like, what is going on? Know that you're not alone. Paul wrote some things that, that were a little hard to understand. Peter himself. Apostle of Jesus Christ, right hand man to our Lord, said Paul wrote some things that were difficult to understand. So that should give us a little, uh, I guess, comfort. But then he goes on to add and say, ignorant people are distorting Paul's writing to their own destruction. So how do we go from Paul's letters being hard to understand to people going toward the path of destruction? We have to know that just because something is hard to understand doesn't mean that it's okay to ignore, to distort, or to disobey. And that's what the false teachers were doing. There's going to be times where we're reading scripture and we come across words or phrases or verses that that we don't understand. There's going to be times where we don't have all of the information and it's kind of hard to draw concrete conclusions. But in humility, when we don't understand something, we work the best we can to find answers. And the reality is some of our questions won't be answered. We won't have concrete conclusions to everything that scripture brings up, and that's okay. But we need to be confident that none of the unknowns of scripture rob us of anything essential for a life of godliness. The Bible itself says all scripture, not some, all scripture is inspired by God. And it's useful to teach us what is true. And it makes us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong, and it teaches us to do what is right. And God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So scripture as a whole is not this impossible maze that we have to sort our way through. It's God's word to us. It has everything that you and I need to follow Jesus in the reality of our real messy lives. And what the false teachers were most likely doing with Paul's words were distorting his teaching on the doctrine of justification by faith. So justification is the doctrine that says because of what Christ has done, we have right standing with God. We stand blameless before God, not because of our perfect performance, but because of Jesus's, right? And we receive this blessing by grace, We don't earn it. We don't work for it. We receive it. But trust in Jesus is always expressed through faith and repentance. It's a big concept. But it's also one that has been twisted through the history of the church. False teachers would try and say that because we're justified in Christ, we can live however we want, right? I imagine them saying things like, where sin abounds, grace abounds, right? There's, There's no condemnation in Jesus. You do you. Everything is permissible. Be free. But Peter says that these false teachers are headed toward destruction because they're turning the grace of God into a license to sin. They don't actually care about Jesus. They just want to use Jesus to justify their flesh. Watch out. These claims may honestly sound a little ridiculous here uh, on a Sunday morning but I'm curious, what lies have you started to believe that may be inconsistent with the way of Jesus? Have you ever found yourself using grace as an excuse to justify some of your behavior? Have you ever found yourself saying things like, I'm only human. I'm 18. I put in my time. Man, everybody watches that. I don't need to be so legalistic. I think anytime we try and make sin more comfortable or convenient in our lives, we have to watch out. John Mark Comer in his book Live No Lies says, "Our war against the three enemies of the soul is not a war of guns and bombs. It's not against other people at all. It's a war on lies. And the problem is less that we tell lies and more that we live them. We let false narratives about reality into our bodies, and they wreak havoc on our souls. And most of the lies that we can begin to tell ourselves, they, they start subtle, subtle, but they can end up taking us on a path of destruction. If you ever swam in an ocean, there's something called the undercurrent. I guess we're not really near water, but if you've been to an ocean, you should go sometime. Uh, There's something called an undercurrent. They can be really dangerous, and so I've been in the ocean before where I'm by the shore, hanging out, floating, and then I, I just start drifting. I'm like, whoa, what's going on? And so I'm paddling back, paddling back, and it's really, really difficult, and I've come back to the shore, praise God. But what seems like only a matter of moments where you start off at shore, and then you're carried away, and then you're like trying, you can barely see the shore in the distance, what happens if we embrace a life of lies is the same thing. We, we can start off on this shore, and then over time, we can end up very far from where we started, far from the place of God, far from a place of security, far from the place that we grew up in, and then we'll be left wondering, how did I end up here? John Mark Comer explains that the three most popular uh, lies that the devil wants people to believe are lies about who God is, lies about who we are, and lies about what makes for a happy life. So he wants us to believe, the devil wants us to believe that God is unloving, that he's a jealous tyrant who's holding out on you and that you can't trust him. He wants us to think that we can live uh, beyond our limitations, that we can become whoever and whatever we want to be. And he wants us to believe that our identity is self-determined, that morality is self-determined, that we need to take control of our lives and that the good life is found by leaning on our wisdom and no one else's. Watch out. So what's the best way to combat the lies that we are going to face, just if we're being honest? How do we avoid being carried away by the error of false teachers? How do we avoid falling from a secure position, falling from a firm foundation? The final thing Peter teaches us is that we grow. Verse 18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be both glory now and forever. Amen. So Peter says it's not simply enough to give a warning. It's not simply enough to to say, hey, don't fall, don't fall, Uh, 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 watch out for false teachers. But there has to be a vision towards something greater. So yes, don't fall, but keep growing keep moving keep maturing and so the 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 concept of growth here is broken down into two parts Peter says grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus so these are two separate but related ideas so the first part is to grow in grace but the second part is to grow in the knowledge of Jesus so what does it mean to grow in grace well, we first have to understand that growing in grace means that grace has already started to do a work in our lives. Grace isn't this thing that we need to go out and find and wrestle to the ground. Peter is really saying, nurture the divine nature that's been given to you and I at our conversion. Earlier in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says... He has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Peter can tell us to grow in grace because he assumes that we've been given a new nature, but a new nature has to be developed. It has to be matured. It has to be fleshed out. Many people think that grace is only relevant to becoming a Christian, but grace is so much bigger than that. Grace in the Bible takes on three primary functions. The first function is unmerited favor. We're most familiar with that. But another function of grace is actually a cleansing from sin. We're transformed, we're renewed, we're given new natures, we're no longer held in bondage to the things that held us bondage. And another function of grace is it empowers us to grow. It empowers us to serve. It empowers us to live different. It empowers us to live the life that Jesus envisions for you and I. So grace isn't limited to us becoming Christians. Grace is is needed to grow as one as well. And if we don't grow in grace... We run the risk of being carried away by false teachers and popular-level lies. The Christian life has always been characterized by movement. It takes intentionality. It takes effort. Why does it take effort? Because we don't live in a neutral world. Like, there is an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy, and so we have to grow in grace. We have to nurture what God has planted in us. And and here's what we need to know about growth. I'm borrowing this language from Tim Keller. But growth is possible, it's gradual, and it's gracious. So growth is possible. It's dangerous if we start to tell ourselves all of the reasons why the Bible can't be true for our lives, personally. So when we say things, I know the Bible says to forgive, but I could never actually forgive that person. When we assume that we will always be stuck in addictive behaviors. When, when, when our entire worldview is, is pessimistic because of all of the things that, that you've encountered. When, when your life kind of takes a bypass to the promises of scripture, you have to be careful of that. I mean, I, I've met some people who've been in church their whole lives. And, and I'm just like, I don't know how to tell you this, man, but it doesn't seem to be working on you. Like, the, it's, it's almost like there's been no growth. Right? Like, you've been here for 50 years and just still the same person? And then I've met people who've given me such a beautiful vision of what following Jesus looks like over the long haul. There's a missionary named John Cashel. He's a missionary in Germany, and he usually visits our Chi Alpha once a year. And John is one of the most humble people I know. He's in his 80s, and he's still traveling and encouraging young college students. And when he travels, he carries one outfit— He'll wash his, his clothes in a bathroom sink. Uh, when you ask him what his favorite meal is, he'll say whatever he's eating right then and there. When, when you ask him what he enjoys doing, he'll look at you in your eyes and he'll say, I enjoy talking to you right now. And he means it. John once told me that he had an anger problem that he had to work on. And I literally couldn't comprehend that he just said that. Like this is a man who I've never seen angry. And yet he knows areas in his heart that he still needs to work on. And I look up to John, not because he's perfect, but when I see how he loves Jesus, when I see how he loves people, when I see how he lives a simple, grateful, joy-filled life, I'm reminded that growth is possible. And so if we're going to grow in grace, we have to declare war on things that are opposed to God in our lives. We can't be casual with them. We, We can't make peace with sin. We can't make peace with habits that are incongruent to the kingdom of God. We have to cultivate habits uh, uh, and disciplines that are going to be conducive to our growth. So growth is possible, but it's also gradual. Right? Like we live in a world where we expect things to happen really fast. We have microwaves. We expect everything to happen in like 60 seconds or less. But that's not how the Christian life works. Eugene Peterson has a book called The Long Obedience in the Same Direction, and I love that title because it reminds me that to follow Jesus means I have to play the long game. Someone recently asked me what I would have told myself when I first graduated Bible college, and I told them I would have said, uh, be more gracious with myself. I had really high expectations to grow really fast and to become this all-star leader in a matter of months, and that's not at all what happened. 27 now, and when I look back over the past six years since graduating, a lot of my growth has been slow, mundane, uh, and at times painful. And my growth has not been the result of a lot of dramatic moments. I would imagine that the same is probably true for you. And, and sometimes we think we can control how fast we're going to grow. Sometimes we think we can control how we're going to grow. Uh, listen yes you can do things that will help you grow and you can do things that won't but we don't actually get to control how we're going to grow we don't get to control timelines the only way to actually monitor our growth is by by comparing the current you to the old you do you still react the way you did a year ago do you still carry the same fears the same habits Have you become any more tender, more patient, more loving? And listen, the people that spend time with you the most are the ones that are most fit to answer that. So growth is possible, and it's gradual, and finally, it's gracious. Man, God has placed his spirit in you, which means all the change we experience is because we've been given a new nature, a divine nature, and that's a gift from God. Philippians 2.13 says, for God is working in you, giving you the desires and the power to do what pleases him. We don't naturally have a desire to please God. We want to please ourselves, but when Christ grabs hold of us, when he births something new in us, we have desires and motives that we didn't have before. Growth itself is an act of grace. So Peter says that we're to grow in grace, but then he also says we have to grow in knowledge. I've known my wife almost 10 years now, which is wild to think about. And as time goes on, uh, I've just learned more and more about her. I I learned her likes, her dislikes, her joys, the things that she's afraid of, the things that uh, get her excited. In this new season of parenting, I'm learning new things about my wife as well. It's really cool. But the more I learn about her, the more connected I feel to her, the more uh, I, I, I love her. And as Peter writes this, Warning against false teachers, he's saying that we have to grow in our knowledge of Jesus. When people at banks are studying how to uh, spot counterfeits, they spend a lot of time studying the the real thing, studying what an authentic bill looks like. And I think Peter's encouraging us that we don't need to spend all of our time mastering the counterfeit lies. We don't need to spend all of our time being aware of all of the things that are going to come at us Each and every day, we need to spend our time growing in our knowledge of the real Christ. We have to spend our time with Jesus. Because knowledge of Jesus is how we combat falsehood, because we're able to separate the real thing from a fake. And the knowledge Peter's talking about isn't this dry, boring textbook knowledge. Like, knowledge of Jesus, it changes us. It guards us. It motivates our obedience. It grows our wonder, and it leads us in worship. Are you still growing in your knowledge of Christ? does he still amaze you does he still lead you in wonder are you still curious or has Jesus become routine to you someone that you already know everything about and you've kind of just exhausted all of your knowledge of him I want to invite pastor Antonia back up here's the thing grace is given but we have to grow in it right Knowledge is given, but we have to grow in it. When it comes to following Jesus, too many quit and grow weary, and and they just stop along the way. They stop growing, they stop learning, they stop coming around, and they give up. And that doesn't actually have to be our story. Life with God is so much better than life without, but you can never assume that you've arrived. We have to keep growing, we have to keep knowing, we have to stay connected to the grace that Jesus offers and Peter closes his book by saying one last phrase in verse 18 that I want to look at again. He says this, to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. To him be the glory both now and forever. You see, Jesus is the one we glorify. He is the hero of our story both now and forever. It's, it's Jesus. It's his love that transforms us. It's his presence that surrounds us. It's his grace that empowers us. And and what it means to be a Christian means that I don't have to rely on my own resources anymore. I can rely on his resources. I can trust that I've been given a new nature. You're not the person you once were. You belong to the risen king. You've been adopted into the family of God, but there's still room for growth. The first time Jesus came to earth, he came as a suffering servant carrying the sins of the world but when he comes again he's coming back as a risen lord he's coming back as a magnificent king he's coming back as an impartial judge and he's going to be clothed in glory and honor and power and until he comes again he expects his people to live worthy of his arrival church live your days with the end in view live your life today As you would on that final day because that's the thing that we were created for Peter calls us a peculiar people but we have all of the resources we would ever need to follow Jesus in our real world at your real job among your real friends among your real boss among your real co-workers in your real field we have everything we need to follow Jesus in that world His spirit is in you. He's transforming you. And day by day, the promise of scripture is that Jesus is going to finish what he started. He's going to finish what he started in each and every single one of our lives. So don't give up. How do we return, or how do we prepare for the return of Christ? Three things. We watch, we wait, and we grow. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that You didn't leave us as orphans and God I thank you that even as you're instructing us to grow and watch out for sin and and to mature in you Lord you're not actually telling us to try harder you're telling us to lean in to what you've started in us and so Lord I thank you that we get to do it as a community I thank you that we get to do it with you I thank you Jesus that you're gracious with us even as it takes us a long time to learn certain things God, but you're not waiting to pull the rug out from us and say, man, I'm so disappointed in you. But Lord, you give us the grace and the encouragement to keep moving forward. And and, and so, Lord, we want to capture the vision that you have for our lives. We want what you want for our lives. And God, we need you to make that possible. And so, Lord, I thank you for every single person here. Lord, if there's anyone here that's not connected to the grace that you offer, Lord, may today be the day. May today be the day, Lord, that people are welcomed into the family forever, Jesus. Uh, Man, because you're patient, you're slow to anger, and you're abounding in love, God. We love you, and we praise you, Jesus. And we say all these things in your name. Amen.